always appreciate the thought and the creativity that goes into your ministry to us, uh, Ringers. Thank you for that this morning. Our beloved Dingalings, we, we love you. <laughs> you are great. And you contribute a lot to our, our time of worship. I'm the only one that can call them beloved dinglings, right? That's just, just, just with us. Good morning. Welcome to worship. I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm uh, delighted to have you here. We're continuing in our journey through the story, which is an abridged version of the Bible, and we began way back in September. Believe it or not, uh, today represents the penultimate chapter in this journey next uh, of the Old Testament. Next week is Nehemiah, the last chapter in the Old Testament in our journey through the story. I love Nehemiah. I hope you'll be here for it. But it's hard to believe, isn't it, that we have uh, progressed this, this much through. So thank you for hanging in there. I hope you'll uh, be ready to read. Uh, how many read your chapter from last week? Good for you. You are so faithful. It's awesome. It's easy to pastor faithful folks like you. So thank you for that. For those of you who were unable to be with us last week, I would urge you to do something I don't ordinarily uh, urge. Uh, would you, uh, if you couldn't be here, would you go back and download my message? I think it was an important message. And I believe that uh, the whole church really ought to hear what I had to say as I shared pretty vulnerably about some of my struggles as a pastor and, and, and aspects of our journey together that I think will enlighten you and bless you. So I'd urge you to write that down as a reminder to yourself and just get caught up by, by doing that. Last week we were in the book of Ezra. And we were watching as the Lord called 50,000 of his people out of Babylon and back to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding the temple. You remember that, right? Nod your heads all vigorously. But as surely as God called 50,000 to come out, he called many more to remain behind. Remain behind as a faithful witness in a pagan culture, a witness to the one true God, Yahweh. And one of the most remarkable witnesses that he chose to keep behind was a young orphaned Jewish girl named Hadassah. But I bet you know her better by her Persian name, which was what? Esther. So why don't we pray that the Lord will reveal his will to us this morning as we study this great book of Esther. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your people gathered here in worship. Thank you for the way they sing. Thank you for the way they greet each other. Thank you for the sweetness of this fellowship, this sweetheart church. And, and Lord, we, we know and attribute it all to the presence of your spirit. The more that we submit ourselves to you, the more remarkable we discover you to be and, and our community is sweeter still. Uh, so would you meet us this day, Lord, as we study this remarkable uh, chapter of your story, and, and, and would you speak to our own lives personally, not just our minds, not just our intellect, but would you transform us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So here's a, here's a softball quiz for you. There once was a man who hated Jews, and when he rose up into a position of power, he undertook to wipe out every Jew in the world, to rid themselves of the, of the Jews. What was the name of that man? Yeah, you are, see, you are too smart for your own good, right? I mean, that's obviously the first thought we have is, is Adolf Hitler, but the, the man that I want to talk about this morning is the guy who did this 2,400 years before Hitler ever came on the scene. His name was Haman, Haman. He was a wicked and awful, awful man, and um, and that's what we're going to talk about. This week's chapter of the story is an account of, of a man named Haman and his plan to exterminate all of the Jews in the kingdom and how he is thwarted by the unlikely heroine named 
Esther. Uh, remember, we are looking at the whole story. Uh, it's one of the things we're trying to do this year. Ordinarily, we're down kind of in the weeds of each passage. But this year, we're trying to stay at the 30,000-foot level. And we're asking, what are the major themes, the major characters of God's story so that we can begin to tell that story ourselves and find the place that we play in that story? Here's the major theme of Esther. If it were not for Esther in God's providence, if it were not for Esther, there would have been no chosen people, there would have been no Jewish people, there would have been no Messiah. But we've talked about the scarlet thread and how it it is woven from the earliest moments of Scripture until the very last breath of Revelation. That's the glimpses that we have of Jesus. Well, I'll tell you this, if it were not for Esther, the, the scarlet thread just about got clipped right here. This was, would have been the end of it. I mean, that's how significant this story is for us as a people that believe in the Messiah that God finally has sent to us in, in Jesus. And one of the most amazing things about this, the book of Esther as you read it is, you will look in vain for the appearance of the name you most often expect to appear in a Bible book, which is what? God. There is no mention, no overt mention of the name of God in the whole book of Esther. He is invisible, and yet there is nothing invisible about his hand of providence. We see him clearly at work in the machinations of the people and in the way that he's bringing his purposes to come to pass. So that's pretty astounding little tidbit for us. Esther is set during the reign of a guy named Xerxes. Would you pronounce that? Yep, maybe the next name of your grandchild, uh, keep that in mind, or middle name anyway. Uh, Xerxes, this occurred about 100 years after Daniel, whom we studied a couple of weeks ago, and about 30 years after the rebuilding of the temple, which we studied last week. All right, so you're understanding the chronology of, of all of this. And I'll bet you actually know King Xerxes better than you think you know him. A few years ago, there was a movie called 300. Remember seeing something of it or seeing it? It was the account of how the Persian army invaded Greece and they were held at bay by 300 Spartan warriors in a narrow mountain pass called called Thermopylae. Well, the king that was leading that Persian invasion was King Xerxes, the same guy. So we have this interaction of of secular history and biblical history. We find that the two are the same. The the scriptures continue to be uh, reliable to us. King Xerxes had a temper. And it shows up in the early chapters of this story that you'll be reading next week. By the way, just read the whole thing. It's only nine plus one tiny little tenth chapter. Read the whole thing. It'll, it'll be great. Xerxes' temper shows up in the early uh, moments of the first chapter because he throws a, a banquet and uh, when everyone is, uh, is pretty lub- well lubricated, he decides he wants to entertain them by having his queen, Queen Vashti, uh, put on display. We don't know exactly know what he was asking her to do, but he, there's a remarkable thing that happened when he ordered that Queen Vashti make her appearance. What is that? She said, no, I'm not going to be on display for your guests. It was unheard of that the king's will would be... Uh, uh, would be refused in that way. And so in his anger, he deposes her, divorces her, does whatever else he wanted to do. But, but she was out of the picture, Queen Vashti. And to replace her, he puts on a, a national beauty contest. He sends his minions out into his kingdom and says, I want you to look for the most beautiful virgins in the land and you'll bring them here. So he got a pool of candidates. And by the way, they had nothing to say about it. 
It was the power of the queen. Their families had nothing, uh, the king, the power, uh, the, the families had nothing to say. The poor girls had nothing to say about it. So he, they collected this pool of candidates and then they subjected them to 12 months of spa treatments. You think I'm kidding? Go and read the story. That's exactly in there. 12 months of spa treatments to make these beautiful women even more beautiful. And then, essentially, the king began to sample the wares, one at a time, until he had settled on the one that he liked the best. And that girl was Esther. And he made Esther his queen. Esther, however, had a secret. Do you know what her secret was? She was a Jew. She was a Jew. She was a descendant of those who had been carried into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, she was raised by a, a cousin, an older cousin named Mordecai, who was a real important player in this story. Uh, her parents were both killed. We don't know how or when, but she was raised up. And so it was Mordecai that played the role of dad in her life, of, of advisor, of counselor. It was a significant relationship that they had. And Mordecai actually made a name for himself early on in the story story. He overhears um, uh, the conversation between two would-be assassins of the king. He hears a plot to assassinate the king. So he reports them. The guys are seized and they are dealt with, as you can imagine, pretty brutally. In fact, they were executed in the favorite fashion of Persian rulers of uh, of the time. Uh, They were turned into human shish kebabs. They were impaled. Uh, and, and there's an ancient uh, graphic, actually, of prisoners being impaled uh, from the bottom side all the way through the, through the top side. Uh, and they sometimes would live for hours and even days, depending upon how it was done. And the purpose of this was, of course, to uh, put on display the enemies of the king and to horrify those to consider that that might happen to them as well. So that's what happened to the enemies of the king, and it was Mordecai, the Jew, <clears throat> who saved uh, Xerxes' life. There was another man in Xerxes' life, though, a man named Haman. He was a wicked man, and he was one of his top advisors. And um, Haman, you know, the old adage about power corrupting and total power, absolute power corrupting, absolutely. This was the impact that it had on Haman. He loved, he was drunk with the power, drunk with the authority. And one of his favorite things to do was to insist that when he walked by, everyone fell down before him and groveled, genuflected before him, you know. Uh, And he loved that. But there was one man who refused absolutely to grovel before Haman. And it was Mordecai. He just would not bow down before this guy. And it infuriated him. And so we pick up a a really important part of the story in chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the, the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people, and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the orders to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day, 
the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Just in case the first two words weren't enough. It's a, it's a pretty comprehensive treatment of the Jewish situation, isn't it? Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Haman was the father of anti-Semitism. I mean, he, he would have been a guy that would have been inspirational for Hitler. And of course, when Mordecai hears the news, he is, he is devastated. We read that he put himself in sackcloth and ashes, and he began to mourn immediately. But he did something else. He sent message to Esther, Queen Esther now, his cousin, and he told her, you've got to intercede on the behalf of your people. You have got to speak to the king. And, uh, and here's what Esther replied as she sent it back by messenger. For any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty years have passed since I was called to go to the king. What, what did I say? Thirty. Yeah, thirty days. Thanks for correcting me. It was just a test. So often I see you falling asleep out there. I just want to make sure. So that's good. Well done. Well done. Well done. 30 days, 30 years. She felt like it was a long time since the king had called her, right? I mean, she was wondering if she was still in his favor, and that was a big issue. Because in order to appeal to him, she needs to be in his favor. So that's the situation. If she approaches the king without being bidden, she risks being killed for it. Uh, and yet every, there's so much that's on the line and Mordecai responds to Esther's fears and, and, and misgivings about this with a very profound statement. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your families, your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish." Powerful, isn't it? Powerful story. Very brave thing that she did. And in fact, we will read this week that he, she did approach the king. He looked, saw her in the distance, and he raises his golden scepter and invites her to come forward. So she does, and he, sa- and he says, Esther, I've been neglecting you. I'm sorry. So uh, it's been 30 years since I saw you last. <laughs> Actually, he said, it seems like 30 years, but it's, I know it's been... So what would you have? I will give you anything that I have up to half of my kingdom. And she said, all I want is a, is a feast. So could I have a feast? And, and why don't you bring along your advisor, Haman? And so they gather that night for a feast. Interestingly, he said, okay, I'm here. Now what do you want? She says, uh, let's have another feast. I think she got nervous. I, mean, I think that first night, she, as the moment came for her to speak, she got nervous. And she said, uh, how about another feast? <laughs> so, so they get together again the next night. And again, uh, the king says, okay, now what would you have? And finally, she screws up her courage and she, she grasps the moment. And she says, here's the deal. 
This edict that you have just, that you have just signed, that, that you were urged by Haman to sign, to kill all the Jews, well, I am a Jew. And so you are ordering the execution of your queen and all of her people. And uh, I'd like you to reconsider that. Uh, Haman threw up his dinner. <laughs> the king was so angry that he goes out and into the garden to co- collect himself. Because she said, this is the guy that did it. So he goes outside and he collects himself. And to add insult to injury, Haman realizes everything rests on his appeal to the queen. And so he makes his way over to the sofa where she is in repose. And as he's pleading with her, apparently trips, falls face first onto the queen at the moment that the king walks back into the room. And so the king says, so... On top of all this, you will molest the king in my pre- uh, the queen in my presence. And uh, guess what happened to Haman? Yeah, not... It was... Really. Yeah. He, he was... You know, he became a kind of a Persian popsicle on the, on the stick that, um, that he had in, actually set up. The 75-foot tall post that he had set up to kill Mordecai became his own undoing. Everything came out in the end, actually. Um, There is a lot more to this story. I hope you'll read it. It really is a great read. But, but here, is, uh, here is the upshot. God uses Esther, a very reluctant hero, to overcome this terrible abuse of political power and or, in order to save her people. And we have a guest here with us this morning that um, knows something about that. Michael Morton was the victim of a great abuse of power. And, uh, and he knows what it means to be drawn reluctantly into a plan far greater than he had ever imagined for himself. In 1987, Michael was falsely convicted of murdering his wife when evidence that would have exonerated him was buried by the district attorney. And so he was sentenced to life in prison, and he began serving that sentence, just to put it in perspective, the same year that I began as your pastor here at Chapel Hill. That's how long it was going on. After 25 years, however, this legal team that never gave up, um, they managed to secure the, the uh, evaluation of a bloody bandana, bandana that had been found just off the site near the house. And the evidence that they uncovered proved conclusively that it was another man who had killed his wife, as he had always claimed, and uh, in fact, who went on later to kill another woman in precisely the same way. Uh, and so it is our pleasure today to, to welcome Michael and his wife Cynthia to hear their remarkable story. And uh, I would love it if you would greet him with a typical Sweetheart Church welcome. I just met Michael yesterday. We uh, had coffee, Cynthia and he and I, and it felt like uh, I'd known the guy forever. He's just a wonderful, warm guy, and uh, welcome. Glad you could be back with us this morning. Um, it's a remarkable story. I've read your book. I, I uh, watched your, um, uh, the documentary. Uh, one of the points that, that struck me, you said, you know, you never expected, you thought that the legal system would come through. And, 
And I was thinking about Mordecai, who, when he hears that basically the sentence that his, uh, has been pronounced upon his people, it just knocks him for a loop. You kind of faced the same thing, didn't you, when the, when the words guilty came across. Tell me a little bit about what that experience was like for you. It was unexpected, and uh, it was like a physical blow. I, I actually almost fell, but I, I dropped into my chair and while I had all this emotional stuff going on and it felt like a physical blow, I also remember hearing my mother wail hmm. in the, you know, there were gasps and there were noises in the, in the courtroom anyway at the announcement, but um, I will always remember the sound of her. You know the sound there. of your it's mother. Just, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the interesting thing about this story as, as we were sharing is that the, the name of of God is never uh, written in Esther's story. He's kind of invisible, and yet you look back after and you see the way his hand was at work. I'll bet there were a lot of times when God wasn't very apparent to you, and yet as you look back now, uh, can, can you see God's hand at work, and, and can you share with us some of the ways that that's the case? Yeah. Um, it may be my shortcoming, but I, um, I can only see God's hand in hindsight. Looking back, I have that, you know, palm of your hand on the forehead. Well, of course. Um, everything was preparing me for now. Um, having little parts of me chipped away year after year. Um, being protected. I, I see, I mean, it wasn't a fun place. It's a rough place. Um, it's not what you're accustomed to. But in hindsight, I can see a hedge of protection around me. Mm. Um, it's something you don't expect. Um, it wasn't um, what I wanted. But I can honestly say in hindsight, it's what I needed. Mm. Mm. You talked about things that were chipped away. The hardest thing was the access to your son. Could yeah. you talk to us a little bit about that? I began losing things. Um, my freedom, of course, all of my assets went to uh, my legal defense, and then all of my parents' assets went to that because if you're trying to avoid prison, you will spend everything you have, and you'll do the same for your child. Hmm. Um, I lost friends, uh, some of my family turned on me, reputation. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I always held on to was the idea of my son. When I went inside, he was about three and a half. And I always knew somehow, someday, some way I would get out. And I wanted to reconnect with him. And he was something of an idol to me. He was my light at the end of the tunnel. He was what got me out of bed in the morning. Hmm. He was what kept me from hanging myself in my cell. And... Um, as with any idol, eventually that has to go too. Hmm. And that led to a pretty profound experience spiritually for you in, in prison? That's an understatement, yeah. The most profound uh, experience I've ever had. Um, I'd been a believer in my early teens, but in uh, the summer between junior and senior in high school, I decided to see what it was like on the other side of the fence and then after that summer, just weigh how I should live. And... Of course, that's a slippery slope, and it became 30 years. Uh, 
when my son turned 18, I got some news in the mail that he was uh, illegally changing his name. Hmm. And he was going to be legally adopted by the people raising him. And all the things that had happened to me had not broken me. He was, this was my last thing. And when I lost that, I did something very uncharacteristically. Um, I cried out to God, you know, hmm. help, show me something. You know, I got nothing here. Hmm. And um, I didn't hear a thing. I didn't feel anything. Nothing happened. And it's um, kind of what I expected because things had been going pretty bad for a long time. A few weeks later, I'm not sure the exact day, but I do know it was a very, very average day in prison. Didn't eat anything unusual. Didn't get hit in the head. Just went to work, went to the gym, went to chow hall. Another day. It was late at night. My cell partner was asleep. Uh, I was on the top bunk. I planned on uh, turning off the light, putting on my radio headphones and going up and down up and down the dial on the radio and then calling it a night. I had done this thousands of nights before this. Hmm. And every indicator was I was going to be doing it for thousands of more nights. I had a life sentence. And I picked up a radio station out of Houston, uh, listening to some music. I heard some harp music. It sounded like I imagined a lady playing a harp. That's rather unusual on the radio. So, yeah. Then without any warning whatsoever, no preamble, no hint, just like that, I found myself bathed in golden light. All I could see was this beautiful golden light. And it was warm. Hmm. And I couldn't see anything else. And I felt as if I might be floating above my bunk. I don't know if I really was or not, but that's how it felt. And I was ecstatic. I was happy. I was very calm and at peace and relaxed. It was serene. But I was on top of the world. It was all contradictory. Hmm. But it was wonderful. And I knew without a doubt. I didn't have to ask anybody. It was self-evident that I was in the presence of God. Hmm. And as powerful as that was, and as wonderful as the feelings were, more importantly, I felt the love of God aimed right at me. Not at everybody, because yes, he does love everybody, but when it was aimed right at me, that was a game changer. Um, Esther reaches a point in our story where she can no longer deny who she is. She has to tell the truth uh, even though it might mean uh, death or, or a problem for her. You reached a, a similar point in a sense. At one point, you were offered early parole. Uh, if you would uh, simply admit your guilt and show remorse, that's all you needed to do, and you, you could have gotten out. What happened? Yeah, about 20 years in, I was eligible for my first parole, and I've never been able to find it written down, but every prisoner knows in order to get parole, you have to express remorse for your crime. And it had been a while. I'd come back to the Lord. Um, I had a very good relationship. I was at peace. But something inside of me knew that I shouldn't lie to get out. Hmm. And so I wouldn't express remorse because that would be a lie. And I could see... um, this wall coming up between me and the parole people when I mentioned that. You just signed your own extended warrant. Yeah. Get comfortable because you're going to be here a while. Yeah. 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 Um, One last last question. The story of Esther is a story of a really evil man who is drunk and abuses his power. And I think it could be well said that uh, you were the subject of some abuse of power and people who 
at least in some of their actions, were, some of their actions were certainly evil. How is it, uh, and in fact, the, this district attorney, they, there was an unprecedented uh, action taken against the, the, the attorney who, who filed, uh, who prosecuted yes. you, is that right? So could you tell us a little bit of the outcome of that and how you found the balance between a natural desire for justice and a deteriorating uh, move towards vengeance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> While I was in prison, this district attorney became a uh, state district judge. And this is the one that suppressed evidence. Yes, he's the one that suppressed evidence. And the state bar went after him. Uh, He was removed from the bench. It's all part of a plea deal. Removed from the bench. He lost his law license forever. $500 fine, $500 of community service. And he was sentenced to 10 days in jail. Everybody that I've talked to and everything I've read, this is the first time in the United States that a prosecutor has done jail time for misconduct in a murder trial. And lawyers, it, it just rocked their world. I even, I, I've even read things about it in other states. They're really watching it. Um, I was very angry while I was inside for a good while. And um, I'd lost everything. I'd been done wrong. And the old me wanted revenge. Hmm. And so... Um, I spent a lot of years planning the murders of the people I felt were responsible. Hmm. Um, the irony wasn't lost on me that I was in prison for a murder I had not committed, but I spent many, many years plotting how to kill the people responsible because I knew somehow I was going to get out. Hmm. And um, I knew that if I wanted to be forgiven, that I had to forgive. Hmm. And so I consciously forgave that man and others. And I was totally unprepared when I did. It was as if um, that 20 unwanted pounds came off of me. I was lighter. I was cleaner. Um, I was better. I was renewed. And it wasn't for... <sighs> he didn't know that I was going to kill him. And he didn't know that I had forgiven him. It was all what you inside of me. To- and our, our instruction to forgive people, while it is the right thing to do, it's not for the person that's offended you. It's for you. It's counterintuitive. It wouldn't be your first choice, but when you do that, when you fulfill God's plan and direction, you benefit. Hmm. And you had a metaphor about poison that you... Yeah. Um, I had read this a while, but... A friend of mine, the only believer on the legal team, uh, he reminded me of it. That keeping revenge, and hatred, animosity in your heart for somebody is akin to drinking poison and then hoping that guy over there dies from it. Yeah. It's completely irrational. Yeah. It's a, a breathtaking story. You've gotten a glimpse of it today. I hope you'll come back tonight at 630 um, Michael is going to share more fully the story and in an unprecedented uh, presentation, Cynthia, his wife, is also going to share her story. Uh, So it's never happened before. We get to be the beneficiaries of that. So I hope you'll come back tonight at 6.30. uh, There's no cost to that. And if you are part of the legal profession or interested from the legal standpoint because there was law that was created as a result of this uh, in Texas that is kind of rocking the nation's uh, judicial world, uh, that will be dealt with tomorrow at 6 o'clock and there are about 30 spots left there. So would you do me a favor and thank Michael one more time for his being with us.
Pretty astounding story, isn't it? Uh, the most famous verse in Esther, and I want to just wrap things up, it comes in chapter 4. You know this verse. I want to repeat it to you. Who knows but that you have come to royal position. Repeat the words with me. For such a time as this. Mordecai's message to Esther was, listen, this is your moment of destiny. God's work is not going to be stymied because you don't participate in it. But if you don't, you will have squandered the opportunity to be a player in God's story of salvation. And I've reflected deeply on these words over different times in my life. It's just one of those passages that has kind of captured my heart. And I've come to believe this. I don't think that these words were just for Esther. I don't think they were just about this young Jewish queen in her moment. I actually think these words speak to all of us. Every single believer in Christ, I think there are moments of destiny, pivot points in every one of our lives where if we act with courage, if we speak with courage, we have the opportunity to turn history. Maybe not the history of an entire people, but maybe the history of one person. Maybe the history of your marriage. Maybe the history of of a friend or a family that is dear to you or your church. I think every one of us has moments that we could hear for such a time as this ringing in our ears. The story of Esther is interesting to me because it kind of reminds me of that image we used to have an angel on one side and a, a devil on the other shoulder and both are speaking into your ear. On the one hand, she had Mordecai who was speaking life, courage, Um, destiny into her ear. On the other side, we have the evil Haman who is speaking evil, twisted, uh, life-bending things into her ear. And she had to decide which voice she was going to recognize, which voice she was going to follow. And there's a sense in which that battle goes on for us every day, doesn't it? We, each day we have the voices of Mordecai in one ear, the voices of Haman in the other. And we must decide each day which one will we heed Which advice will we follow? But I do think it's more than just a day-by-day drudgery. I also think there are moments in life, and I could point to them, I don't have the time to do, but I think of kind of those pivot points where, where we hear the voice of Mordecai saying, for such a time as this. This is your moment. God's work will not be stymied, and if you don't want to play, he'll find someone who does, but you will have squandered the opportunity to change the course of history in a small way, or perhaps even a great way. The astounding story of Esther, I think, is her humility, how simple she was. She was a nothing. She was a nobody. And yet God chose to raise her up. And when the moment came, when the voice was spoken, she said yes. And of course, God used her. I wonder how many heroes there are here today, reluctant heroes, who don't even view themselves that way, but who, to whom the, the Spirit has said, this is a moment for you to speak, to stand, to act. And if you do, you are going to be a part in the plan that I have to bring salvation to this person, this family, this community. What a difference it would make if everyone in this place said, for such a time as this, those are words for me. I will look for it when the moment comes. By God's grace, I will act. Let's pray. It's uh, really an amazing thing, Lord, to, to realize that you choose to use us 
that by your spirit dwelling in us, the spirit that Esther did not have living inside of her, the spirit Mordecai did not have living inside of her, but the spirit of your risen son lives inside of us. And so we are better equipped than any of them to be used by you, to be sensitive to you, to take courage in you, to speak your words. And so I pray, Lord, in this time, in this broken pagan time, that we would be among those who would say, Lord, we want to be, your, we want to be players in your game. We want to be players in the story of your salvation. And so you speak, and we will act. As we heard sung today, we will say yes to you. Give us the courage to do it, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.